Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. A labor dispute between Peoria Public School administrators and the district's many unionized educators continues. With the first effort at federal mediation, a failure. Union teachers, though, now authorizing strike authority for top negotiators. Teachers union officials have come forward with an explosive allegation against the district about unreported money that could have been used to compensate teachers. Peoria Federation of Teachers President Jeff Atkins Dutro and Matt McCaw joined WNBD's Will Stevenson and the Craig Collins Show last week to tell us more. 1470, 100.3 WMBD, it's the Craig Collins Show. Our next guests are part of the Peoria Federation of Teachers. Uh, they have expressed disappointment in some of the negotiations going on uh, right now between them and the board. Uh, welcome to the show, Jeff Atkins Dutro and Matt McCall. A first quick question for you, if you don't mind. Can we set the table? Can you tell us where things are at as far as the negotiations are going? Uh, we've done bargaining for a long time we've had 19 meetings um after the 19th things broke down so we brought in the federal mediator um we did however decide to have one more meeting on the 7th of september at least one more meeting okay uh, as you said one more meeting i saw that there was some and i don't know uh, i think this might have uh, come from uh, your side of the conversation uh, some mention of the word strike that's not something that's planned yet but that's something that could inevitably be an end result of failed negotiations, obviously, right? And actually, uh, in a statement today, Board President Martha Ross said that you have been talking of a strike. Are you talk? I guess the question again is, are you talking of a strike? I don't think Martha is really informed with regards to what she's <laughs> talking about. Um, Just quickly, I want to touch on the financial component to this. Um, how far off, if you can even answer it that way, are the offers that have come in so far and the requests that you're making and is there any reason that you think there's so much disparity in the financial component uh, to a negotiation? I know that this, uh, for years uh, working in radio in Chicago, uh, schools and teachers fight often over how much teachers get paid. Is there a reason in this situation today that we're seeing such a, a difference in the willingness and the request? Yeah, I'm going to let Matt speak to the... Uh, millions of dollars that we found the district was uh, kind of covering up and not letting us know about. Um, basically, the problem is we know they have the money, and they're just outright refusing to give it to us. But I'll let Matt comment on uh, the millions of bucks that turned up. Yeah. Um, so our district for years, for years, going back the last 20 years, they always at, at the bargaining table would often say, if we had the money, uh, we certainly would give you the raise uh, that you deserve. Well, this time around, they do have the money. Um, we we recently learned that that uh, they have a revenue stream, uh, corporate personal property replacement tax (CPPRT), and that our district in the last two years has received. Uh, 19.6 million dollars above what they budgeted. Wow! Corporate personal property replacement tax, though, is not a new concept. So, how did you how did you figure out that you, you so, this was there and you didn't uh, know about it? We got a financial report from uh, the district back in late May, early June, and you know they reported to us. Listen, we're, we're uh, assuming a three percent, three percent 
uh, annual increase in CPPRT. And we kind of let it go. We took them at their word when they said that. Um, we, we, got, uh, we got some information, and we learned. We did some digging uh, deeper into it. And as it turns out, uh, in fiscal year 22, essentially every municipality in the state that gets CPPRT got double, got, got double than what was anticipated. Um, it was a windfall. And so when you look at what our districts received in the last two years, right, fiscal year 21 and 22, uh, we're talking close to $20 million additional on top of what they budgeted. Right, and look, fiscal year 23, the forecast is another seven and a half percent increase. And I mean, they've got the money, and, and so, and that's what's disappointing right now. This is not an economic argument that the district can make. You know, they used to make an economic argument, and and they weren't always wrong, but this time around, uh, what the, I think what they're saying. Uh, we don't value our teachers enough. We should say we have contacted the district about this this allegation, and we have yet to hear back. But have you asked the district about this disparity? And if so, what have they told you about? We did. Uh, I mean, so we did get the final numbers on what they budgeted and what they received from the district. Um, you know, so when, when we, uh, a few weeks ago, when we requested uh, the actual numbers, they did provide them. Um, we don't know. We don't know what they did, or what their plan is with the additional revenue. Um, we know. Uh, we know that they did uh, amend their 22 budget um, somewhat, but it, uh, what they put into their education fund doesn't account for the the giant surplus that they got. Won't this sort of thing come we, out in the district's annual audit? Well, I don't think so, and I'm not going to say that they were hiding it uh, um, I'm just saying that it's they didn't report it to us do you understand so when they gave us their financial presentation hey here's what we expect to earn you know uh, CPPRT and the you know general uh, state aid the funding for education um, they didn't tell us the whole truth mm-hmm. on what they were getting you know when you tell the bargaining team you're only uh, expecting a three percent uh, annual yeah. growth, and it turns out you're damn near getting a hundred percent increase in your in the money. But come on, something's not right here. Yeah, no, and I wonder if now is a convenient time, of course, as I'm sure you guys do, uh, to give you one narrative, and then if another narrative emerges later in an audit, uh, it's too late to have this conversation again. Uh, I do wonder this. This is just a simple question about some other conversations I've been having on my show about teaching and how there's staffing issues and we're struggling to find maybe young professionals turning toward that career to the same degree as in the past. One of the biggest conversations that comes up often is the lack of uh, appropriate wage uh, for the types of careers that people go into here. Uh, Is any of this sort of conversation today forward thinking in a way in which if there is a valuable increase in compensation or other things, it might help with staffing problems at these schools in finding those additional professionals. Well, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head. I mean, that's, we talk about this all the time. We have an interest, just like the district does, in both retaining and recruiting teachers. 
And let's face it, the economic climate that we're in, uh, there's a giant teacher shortage in Peoria with 60-plus positions, you know, short right now. we got low morale. So we, we, need to, we need to do something about the salary. And, and we want to keep people, good teachers, good professionals working in our district. And then we want to be able to recruit new ones too, right, fresh out of college. Yeah. And, and we got to be able to pay them. Uh, the salaries are competitive. This is, you know, our proposal is not going to make us the highest paid district in the area. It's simply going to make us more competitive. That that all said, though, is it sort of a, a hard sell, I guess, to an average taxpayer that that you you want you want more money or you want teachers to be better paid? I mean, there are a lot of people probably listening that might think that, oh, well, I don't make that much money. Why should they? Um. It, it possibly could be a hard sell. Let me ask you this. Why, and this is something the public's got to think about. Why is it okay when we hear that a teacher's got a second job? Why is it okay that society, we're okay with that? When we hear that a teacher is bartending on weekends or waitressing on weekends or working at a bookstore or, and we're not just talking about like, hey, the, the two months that we have off in the summer. Right. I'm talking about through the school year. Why do so many people accept the fact that teachers have a second job? And, and, and we've become too normalized to that in our society. The next contract bargaining meeting with mediation scheduled for September 7th. And more Week in Review coming up. The DEA this week informing Americans about an emerging new trend which suggests to federal agents that drug cartels are disguising dangerous doses of addictive fentanyl as colored candies. An announcement from the Drug Enforcement Administration says it's advising the public of the availability of the rainbow-colored pills and chalk candies, quote, across the United States. According to a news release Wednesday, federal and state law enforcement officers reportedly found evidence of these drugs in 18 states through the month of August. Chris Schaffner program director at Jolt Harm Reduction in Peoria says his group's network of technology and information sources around the region does not suggest a presence of these dangerous colored fentanyl pills doses yet. I caught up with him to learn more. Chris, what was your immediate reaction when you first heard the news? Well, my first reaction is to, one, verify the information is correct. There's a lot of misinformation that gets spread rapidly. Um, uh, around, particularly around drugs, uh, drugs, illicit drugs, drugs of abuse. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation, um, and particularly if it comes from the DEA, uh, they tend to use a lot more um, fear-laced rhetoric um, that I don't think is always reflective of the actual issue. So it's really to look into that, talk to people that have boots on the ground uh, to find out what we're seeing firsthand. Uh, from other people that I know that work in harm reduction on the streets uh, around the country. What is it in terms of, in light of the idea that we're talking about um, overdose uh, awareness uh, this week, uh, what's important for people to know about the uh, presence of fentanyl in the states? Yeah, I think it's important that people know, particularly if these are folks who are regularly just consuming uh, street-based drugs, is that we're finding fentanyl in, in just about everything, um, with the exception of cannabis. 
uh, we're finding uh, fentanyl in methamphetamine and cocaine, crack cocaine. We're finding it uh, in pressed pills or repressed pills. Um, so there is the inherent danger is just simply not knowing what you're consuming. Um, uh, people use fentanyl all the time in hospital settings. And because there are specific safety controls in place, they can mitigate any kind of adverse reaction to it. But that doesn't exist in the streets because of our drug policies. So what people have access to on the streets and the safety policies or procedures that are, that are not in place, that's what creates the risk for an overdose. So we just tell everybody, assume fentanyl or other substances uh, are in whatever it is you're purchasing to consume. And then you can make decisions from there about safety and, 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 and use or not use. What do you make of this idea, again, from the DEA, that we have a new tactic at play here by drug cartels to try and use doses of fentanyl colored as potential candies to get kids addicted to it? What do you make of that? Yeah, I just don't think there's any real evidence to support that that's a strategy uh, that they're going after kids to get them addicted. Uh, the use of coloring is common in drugs, whether they're pharmaceuticals. Um, that does a couple of things. I identify brand. It identifies the content of the drug. And so to see cartels or, or even mid-level dealers add some kind of food coloring to a substance, it's more likely that they're being colored so that people know what the actual content is or who the brand belongs to. So it's not necessarily coloring for the kids. It just so happens the kids could get caught up in a bad thing that they're attracted to. Is that the Absolutely. idea you have about it? That is the idea. Is that there is there potential if a kid finds a handful of these pills that look like they're sweet tarts or smarties, um, there's the risk. But the likelihood of that happening is so low. Every year around Halloween, we hear about candy laced with drugs and, you know, how it's it's all targeting kids. And, and the, honest, the honesty is that that has rarely ever been the case, is that the rhetoric doesn't match the risk. Um, and so something like this, uh, and again, to call something, a, a, you know, like this as a strategic and you know, uh, decision to target young people and get them hooked on drugs, who wouldn't be opposed to that? Um, and so it's also a justification that more money and more policy is, is spent to support the DEA, which fights the war on drugs. And that has been an abject failure for the last 50 years. Talk about the risks plainly um, and then invest money in other infrastructure, more so on d the demand side versus the supply side like the DEA has historically done. So how do we address people's demand or need for the drugs versus how do we stop the flow of drugs into the country in the first place? Because we have not been able to do that um, in spite of the trillions of dollars we've invested in that border war on drugs. So in light of all of this, I suppose I would offer you the opportunity because the DEA is um, – they specialize in being alerted and having their head on a swivel about stuff. I suppose that might come through in their news releases from time to time, and they might uh, presume that families should think and see the same things the same way that they do. I right. would offer you the opportunity, perhaps, to kind of process the information in light of all of this. What message would you 
have to families, parents out there who see the information and think to themselves, gee, I ought to talk to the kids about this. Sure. So I still think we need to educate our kids. I, I don't think, um, you know, we've been trying to use fear-based tactics for years. Our, our D.A.R.E. drug prevention programs have not worked at all. So I think having realistic conversations with our kids to help them understand the realities that are out there um, and help them learn how to discern fact and, and media campaigns around certain things. And I mean anything. So whether it's messages, subtext messages that are sent through movies and television shows, or how do we discern reality from um, local news, right? Um, those kinds of information, that kind of stuff is important uh, when having conversations with kids is helping them to think critically about the I do think we need to let them know a lot of these pills have markings on them uh, that, um, you know, if you, I mean, if you just Google the, you know, fentanyl rainbow pills, you'll see printing on them. There's M's and there's 30s, and that usually means that some type of drug, oxycotton or morphine or uh, fentanyl, um, and how they know, like, what markings symbolize substances that are dangerous if, if misused. And also, how do you know if something is just candy, you know? And so I think it, a lot of that's going to boil down to the kind of relationship parents have with their kids so their kids feel comfortable talking about those things with them. Okay. Uh, Chris, if there are any other notes that you had you thought that would be important for folks to know about this issue, about um, overdosing in general and raising awareness to that issue in particular, of course, I wanted to go ahead and give you the floor before we jumped up. Sure. Well, I just think it's important. We, we, we firmly believe we've seen a great deal of success in reducing fatal overdoses in central Illinois. Last year, Jamie Harwood, our coroner, told us we've seen a 50% decrease in fatal overdoses in 2021, and we're on par for that again. So the reason we believe that's happening is because we have saturated our community with Narcan, and we have that available. That's an overdose reversal medication that we will give to anybody without question, and it's free. The other new service that we've been provided, and we're, there's laws that have been passed that have decriminalized this, is that we can actually collect small samples of illicit street drugs and have them tested for adulterants. That gives us a better idea of what's on the street at any given moment. And so about once or twice a week, um, we're, we're sending samples off to uh, advance uh, testing technology um, services so we get an accurate understanding of what kinds of drugs are in the streets right now. So that's why even locally we have not heard of nor seen any of these rainbow fentanyl pills um, that are that are that we're starting to see kind of spill into our country and we haven't seen those yet. And I believe we would if they were here because we have uh, a good relationship with people in the community that use drugs and uh, they provide us with that kind of information. Right? So Access uh, fentanyl, that's what I would say. And second, um, if somebody's concerned, this is that they're consuming um, and we need to know what's in the product that's on the streets so that people can be informed about safety risks, um, we can test that legally now. We heard from the Republican candidate running to replace outgoing Democratic Congresswoman Sherry Bustos this week. Esther Joy King joined WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show. Greg and Dan show on WMBD. Greg Batten, Dan DiOrio, 741 is the time. That Eminem song right there, Lose Yourself, Danny. A lot of people use as motivation when they're running a race or when they're running on the treadmill, right? It's a good one. 
Esther Joy King is running the race in the 17th District. Good to see you, Esther Joy. Good morning, Greg. Good morning to you. Thanks for coming in, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I am so happy to be here this morning. Uh, tell us about you. Uh, I think a lot of us know your name. You you ran before. Uh, you're running again in the new uh, drawn 17th, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> but uh, give us your quick background. What yeah. is your bio? Well, the Illinois 17th covers most of the Peoria area, so I'm honored to – I look forward to representing – Peoria, Illinois. My background, my mom and dad were Christian missionaries growing up. So I actually grew up in Mexico. And you can imagine with parents like that, they they demonstrated and, and they didn't just live it. They they taught me every single day, Esther, if there's something wrong in the world, it's our job to jump in, make a difference, do whatever we can to help. And so that theme has carried through my whole career. It led me to join the United States Army. So I'm a JAG officer in the military, in the Army, and I was sent to the Rock Island Arsenal in the Quad Cities area, and you don't live in this part of the state very long without learning that we feel underrepresented, that we deserve a better voice in Springfield, in Washington, D.C., and so with what the way my parents raised me, I said, you know what, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to make a difference, so I ran in the 2020 election, right. and that's why a lot of people have heard heard of me before, is because we were, it was kind of a David versus Goliath narrative last election, and we almost won, we came within inches of winning while being outspent by over $5 million last mm-hmm. time, and so this time going into 2022, my former opponent, she's retiring, Sherry Bustos is out, and... I am the front runner in this race. And then the Democrats, they tried to gerrymander it and, and uh, make it a Democrat district. But that said, people are people are coming our way. And so when I'm out campaigning on the campaign trail and everything. Can I ask a question about because uh, uh, you live in the Quad Cities and, mm-hmm. and East Moline. Uh, does East Moline and, and the Illinois part of the Quad Cities feel the same way that Peoria does? You said underrepresented. Mm-hmm. And of course, you meant that on a national level. But there's also a state issue. Oh, yeah, for Where sure. we feel like, anybody paying attention to what's going on here? Yeah. Is that the same feeling there? Very much so. And in, in the Quad Cities in particular, because we're right across the river from Iowa. Yeah. I mean, during the lockdowns, we suffered greatly. When we, businesses especially, like small business owners talking to them, they could, we could literally look across the river and see thriving communities and then we're like over here being wait hey we're over what? here like yeah. why yeah, do we no, have to be it. shut yeah. down so um there's se- certainly still angst and upset and especially when i'm talking with parents mm-hmm. like parents whose kids didn't get to do sports for two years or learning about from the the remote learning just the effects on their kids and all that kind of stuff so there's there's a lot that we're still upset about this i'm assuming is something that's important to you what i'm about to ask you is and dan and i get very frustrated we are not former military people Mm -hmm. but we certainly support veterans and we don't understand why our veteran services still after dan and i've been doing this for 30 some years Mm -hmm. in this in this radio business right and that subject of the VA and all these things has never changed. I, I just talked to a guy who has a brain problem, has to go to Danville all the time when mm-hmm. one of the number one doctors is right here in Peoria. He goes, mm-hmm. why can't I go so here? That, right? I would imagine it's high on your priority list. As Absolutely. A yeah. Being a veteran, many of my family members are veterans. For example, my dad, I've seen firsthand, He he's a veteran, and he, trying to get his medical services through the VA is just, it's so, tough. So why is it broken i don't yeah. get it yeah. two words okay government bureaucracy okay just that 
it, it just seeing how the layers upon layers of bureaucracy, and I don't want to completely dig 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 say bad things about the VA. Yeah, I got you. Uh, it's early in the morning. Yeah, I, got you. No, okay. <laughs> I haven't had coffee yet yeah. this morning. Uh, because they do try and serve our veterans and but the the layers upon layers of agency regulations and the congress making rules instead of being oriented towards towards doing what's best for veterans that's what's really tough yeah, just about serve it. it just yeah just, it, just, yeah. it seems simple mm-hmm. uh but i recognize that there's uh piles of paperwork in the way you said democrats independents and republicans are all excited about this election um, there are some of us who I I would and I think I speak for Greg who are more in the middle who are tired of the far right the far left the constant bickering. There's going to be differences, obviously philosophically, but the 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 name calling and the inability to get along and get things done is very frustrating. It is frustrating. And when I'm out talking with people, you're exactly right. People, they know we deserve better. We deserve better from our government, from Washington, D.C., especially right now under the Biden administration. When families can look back just two years ago and realize, wait a second, my gas prices were half price. And when I'm talking with families who are struggling and and they can connect the dots, we're smart, right? We can tell that this is a direct result of bad policy that's coming out of our government because of the partisanship, because of the the decision making that where Washington, D.C. thinks they know better than we do about how to run our lives. And so when I'm talking with families who are suffering economically, a mom the other day, I was knocking on doors and she's like, Esther. Right now, I have to go check my bank account before I can decide how I'm going to feed my kids and what I'm going to buy at the grocery store. When Americans are in that spot, we're doing something wrong. And, and we are, we're America, right? We, we're the land of opportunity and we're a land where, where we, and so I am so excited. That's what this election is all about. It's about being a voice. For people who deserve that, that feel like they've been underrepresented for so long out here in Western Illinois at the state level right, right. and at the federal level. Okay, I would be remiss. Obviously, the abortion issue is going to be big. A lot, a lot of women are signing up around. Uh, between your beliefs, but your because you're going door to door talking to mm-hmm. Democrats, Independents, and Republicans, w- what they feel. How do you mix all that together? Yeah, well. Women's health, the concerns around this are something I live every single day. Um, so it's it's a real issue. And I am unapologetically pro-life. And when I'm out talking with people, um, right here in Illinois, we are the most extreme state on the abortion issue, right? So people understand that uh, what happened with the Supreme Court, it doesn't affect many, uh, it doesn't affect change here in the state of Illinois. And so where Americans are, they're much more aligned with um, um, exceptions. So there's polling that shows that 80% of Americans support support restrictions on abortion. And so even where we're at, our laws in Illinois are so extreme that not many people support where we're at. People don't support killing babies up to birth. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty... Um, it's a it's an issue that is of concern, and when I'm talking to people about it, but I'll tell you this: so ten times out of ten, even women, everyone, we don't have the luxury of being just a one issue voter when our gas prices 
are so high yeah, and our grocery ask, prices are so high. Ones, yeah. So right now, above all else, people, when I'm talking with people, 10 times out of 10, people are saying, Esther, we're barely surviving right now. Uh, we're suffering because of the extreme inflation and the economic um, pressure that we're under as a family, as an individual. And so talking about inflation and in Fighting for what people care about right now is what this campaign is all about. And, and you're a very large ag district. Absolutely. And, and and so what are their concerns? Yeah, well, right now, input costs are so high. Uh, every single farmer is looking at, you know, we're coming up on harvest season, but then going beyond that and looking at next season, they're, they're already putting down uh, buys for their inputs and their supplies, and they're, they're astronomical. So just being able to afford... Uh, production over the next 10 to 24 months is just a huge concern. Uh, website? EstherforCongress.com. Okay. And my name is E-S-T-H-E-R for Congress. It is nice to meet you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Greg. It's See great you. to meet you, Greg and Dan. Democrat and longtime TV meteorologist Eric Sorensen facing Esther Joy King in the general election this November. While manufacturing remains a bedrock of the Illinois economy, Challenges certainly remain, especially in the labor force. Mark Densler, president of the Illinois Manufacturers Association, shared more on WMBD's The Greg and Dan Show. Mark Densler is the president and CEO of the Illinois Manufacturing uh, Manufacturers Association. Hey, Mark, good morning to you, buddy. How you doing? Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. Sometimes manufacturing can can be not forgotten, but... You know, we've gone uh, uh, through some changes over the last couple of decades, and people are like, oh, well, what's, what's manufacturing anymore? When the fact of the matter is, it's still the bread and butter of our economy. You're absolutely right. I mean, manufacturing is the greatest driver of economic prosperity and wealth in this country. And, and, and you're exactly right. I don't think enough people have an appreciation for what the men and women in manufacturing do every day. And reason the, the manufacturing matters tour is going around the state you're right we were with our friends chris and steve and Choi and morton industries this week uh to talk about the importance of manufacturing in the greater peoria area and uh you know where, where they employ and support forty thousand jobs and tens of billions of dollars in economic output when you look and break down the various sectors obviously there's the ag side of manufacturing the construction side of manufacturing, the oncoming biotech side of manufacturing, and the bioscience and environmental side. So there's uh, sectors that have been traditional and sectors that are emerging. You know, you're, you're exactly right. The single largest share of Illinois' manufacturing economy is in the food space, which, as you know, is directly tied to the agricultural sector, which Illinois is a leader nationally as well. But we're a diverse state, and so whether it's heavy equipment, which you have in your backyard, food, pharmaceuticals, chemical, electronics, steel, uh, Illinois has a diverse manufacturing sector. And, you know, across the state, uh, 662,000 people work in manufacturing, uh, annual economic output of $600 billion, which makes it the single largest share of our economy, 14%. And again, most people don't realize it because they drive past manufacturers that are oftentimes in gray, nondescript buildings and industrial parks, and they don't know the cool things that are being produced in those factories today. I got an idea for you, Mark. We should have a website called What Goes On In There. What What Goes On In There dot com. Because you drive, you do, you drive by places. Even me, I've been around this area most of my life. You drive by a place that's like, what's going? 
What do well, they do in there? Like yeah. you, you go by and it's been around for a long time, Parsons Manufacturing. But and you drive by, they go, but what goes on? Yeah, in? I kind of know about Parsons. I kind yeah, of, yeah. 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 Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, Mark, let me ask you this. Uh, this is a tough question for you. I got two tough ones for you. One is, what's the biggest challenge right now? What's the biggest challenge for manufacturing? Well, there, there's a lot of challenges, but I would say workforce before the pandemic and after still remains probably the largest challenge. Uh, before the pandemic started, with 437,000 open manufacturing jobs nationally. Today, we're at 850,000 open manufacturing jobs. And wow. so, wow. you know, the folks at Morton Industry have their own training academy. Uh, the will show up for work. You know, Morton will train them up, as will Caterpillar and, and other manufacturers. But it's really finding people. And whether they're young men and women coming out of school or returning veterans or dislocated workers, and I think part of that, it's a great question, is the perception. Too many people envision manufacturing as dark, dirty, and dangerous. Maybe what you thought about 30, 40 years ago, belching smokestacks and cuts. But today's manufacturing is, you know, there's virtual reality and 5G, sure. and it's automated, and it's clean. And so so to get people to address that workforce jobs, we really have to change the perception of manufacturing. And uh, I really, and this is something that I've been pushing and talking about for a long time, when you want a skilled workforce, you need to start going into high schools where kids are sophomores and juniors and start training them then, transition them to like ICC has a great program, Illinois Central College. And so the manufacturing dips in from high school into junior college and says, look, here's opportunities. Follow these courses, and once you're in it, we'll connect with you and pull you through and help you train you on the other side. A lot of kids starting their sophomore, junior year can take that train right into manufacturing. Yeah, I, I could I could hire you to be our press person. Um, you're exactly right. And at the uh, press event we had this week, we had Dana King from Illinois Central College because they played such a critical role. And we've lost a generation of workers because for the last couple of decades, whether it's parents or teachers or counselors, but really school districts have gone away from career and tech education. And so the students don't have the opportunity to explore those careers. Now, I'm really proud that the IMA led an effort this year to pass legislation that's going to require high schools, again, starting in 2025, to offer career and tech ed in every high school. So those young individuals at least have the opportunity to learn about it. We passed a dual credit program a couple of years ago, and I know Morton Industries was telling the story. They got high school students that go to school during the day and come and work in the afternoon. So when they graduate, they step right into a job. And, again, the average manufacturing job pays almost $80,000 a year in wages and benefits. So these are great middle-class jobs in every community across the state. We're talking with Mark Denzler, President and CEO of the Illinois Manufacturers Association. All right, here's a complicated one that you, we could talk about for an hour. So I grew up I grew up in Pekin, Illinois, down the road from uh, this radio station. And I, I uh, it's a story I'll tell you some other day, but... My, my dad was part of the beginning of what is now Morton Industries with a man that he knew named Mr. Rinkenberger. And um, in that era of the 60s and 70s, the manufacturing employee, whether they were at Morton Welding at that time or they were at Caterpillar or Keystone Steel and Wire, they made a really great living, a really great living, affording nice homes and boats and vacations and sending kids to college, right? 
over the, part of that credit to that nice living, Mark, has to be given to a relationship that manufacturing had with labor unions. And that relationship has fallen apart to almost nothing now. And I know that it's a, it's a very nerve-wracking conversation, but from the IMA standpoint, where, where is the relationship between manufacturing and labor unions? You know, it's a great question. We have a, uh, I have a good relationship with the AFL-CIO, and a lot of manufacturers are unionized. And, and kind of to your point, we've lost 300,000 manufacturing jobs since, since the year 2000. Um, you know, we still employ 660,000. But as I tell our friends in organized labor, when you lose manufacturers in Illinois, you're losing union jobs. And, you know, we'll work with them on, on many cases, particularly when we see the environmental community, for example, trying to shut down factories or make it much more difficult to operate. And there are certainly issues where, where we disagree. But uh, One last question. When you talk about the workforce, if you're a 35 or 40-year-old in a job and you're like, you know what, I want to explore what's going on in manufacturing and maybe go take classes at ICC, uh, is, are those people in that age range viable to jump right into manufacturing? Oh, a- absolutely. Manufacturers are looking for anybody. And, and again, whether you're an ex-offender um, who's looking to enter the workforce, or a young student, a returning veteran, a dislocated worker, that 35 or 40-year-old, and when you look at manufacturing, it's not just production floor or an engineer. It could be accounting. It could be marketing. There are so many different jobs. And in the study we released, you look at the top 20 occupations, industrial engineers and mechatronics, they're expected to grow 20% in the next six years. So manufacturing jobs are growing, and it's very easy to get upskilled or retrained. might be a six-month certificate, maybe a year. But oftentimes those employers will pay for your training or provide it for you. Uh, you know, if you can show up for work and get there on time and you have a good work ethic, You'll, you'll find work in a manufacturing facility, and, and they will help train you for those jobs. Always good to talk to you, Mark. We hope you enjoy your weekend. Thanks for giving us a few minutes. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Cooper Banks, WNBD News.